Section 21 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 15, 1567 and 1568, Part 1. Notwithstanding the uniform success and general applause which had hitherto crowned her administration, at no point perhaps of her whole reign was the path of elizabeth more beset with perplexities and difficulties than at the commencement of the year fifteen sixty seven the prevalence of the scottish faction had compelled her to give a pledge to her parliament respecting matrimony which must either be redeemed by the sacrifice of her darling independence or forfeited with the loss of her credit and popularity her favourite state mystery the choice of a successor had also been invaded by rude and daring hands and to such extremity was she reduced on this point that she found it necessary to empower the commissioners whom she sent into scotland for the baptism of the prince distinctly to propound the following offer that on a simple ratification by mary of only so much of the treaty of edinburgh as engaged her to advance no claim upon the english crown during the lifetime of elizabeth or any posterity of hers a solemn recognition of her right of succession should be made by the queen and parliament of england the Scottish ministry, instead of closing instantly with so advantageous a proposal, were imprudent enough to insist upon a previous examination of the will of Henry VIII, which they fondly believed that they could show to be a forgery. And the delay which the refusal of Elizabeth occasioned gave time for the interposition of circumstances which ruined forever the character and authority of Mary, and rescued her sister-queen from this dilemma. On February the ninth, 1567, Lord Darnley, then called King of Scots, perished by a violent and mysterious death. Bothwell, the Queen's new favourite, was universally accused of the murder, and the open discord which had subsisted, even before the assassination of Rizzio, between the royal pair, gave strong ground of suspicion that Mary herself was a participator in the crime. Elizabeth behaved on this tragical occurrence with the utmost decorum and moderation. She expressed no opinion hostile to the fame of the Queen of Scots, and took no immediate measures of a public nature respecting it. It can scarcely be doubted, however, that in common with all Europe she secretly believed in the guilt of Mary, and even though at the bottom of her heart she may have desired rather to see her condemned than acquitted in the general verdict, such a feeling ought not, under all the circumstances, to be imputed to her as indicative of any extraordinary malignity of disposition. To announce to the Countess of Lennox, still her prisoner, the frightful catastrophe which had closed the history of her rash misguided son, was the first step taken by Elizabeth. It was a proper, and even an indispensable one. But the respectful and considerate manner of the communication, contrasted with former harsh treatment, might be designed to intimate to the House of Lennox that it should now find in her a protectress, and perhaps an avenger. We possess a letter addressed by Cecil to Sir Henry Morris, ambassador in France, in which are found some particulars on this subject, oddly prefaced by a commission on which it is amusing to a modern reader to contemplate a prime minister at such a time and with so much gravity engaged. But the division of labour in public offices seems to have been in this age very imperfect. Elizabeth employed her Secretary of State to procure her a mantua-maker. James I occupied his in transcribing sonnets of his own composition. Quote, Sir William Cecil to Sir Henry Norris, February twentieth, fifteen sixty six, sixty seven. The Queen's Majesty would fain have a tailor that had skill to make her apparel both after the French and Italian manner. 
and she thinketh that you might use some means to obtain some one such there as serveth that queen without mentioning any manner of request in the queen's majesty's name first to cause my lady your wife to use some such means to get one as thereof knowledge might not come to the queen mother's ears of whom the queen's majesty thinketh thus that if she did understand it were a matter wherein her majesty might be pleasured she would offer to send one to the queen's majesty nevertheless if it cannot be so obtained by this indirect means then her majesty would have you devise some other good means to obtain one that were skilful i have stayed your son from going hence now these two days upon the queen's commandment for that she would have him to have as much of the truth of the circumstances of the murder of the king of scots as might be and hitherto the same is hard to come by other than in a generality the queen's majesty sent yesterday my lady howard and my wife to the lady lennox to the tower to open this matter unto her who could not by any means be kept from such passions of mind as the horribleness of the fact did require and this last night were with her the said lady the dean of westminster and dr hewick and i hope her majesty will show some favourable compassion of the said lady whom any humane nature must needs pity the liberation of the countess followed and the earl her husband soon after gratified elizabeth's desire to interfere by invoking her assistance to procure by representations to mary some extension of the unusually short time within which he was required to bring forward his proofs against bothwell whom he had accused of the assassination of his son this petition produced a very earnest letter from one queen to the other in which elizabeth plainly represented to her royal sister that the refusal of such a request to the father of her husband would bring her into greater suspicion than as she hoped she was aware or would be willing to hear adding quote, for the love of god madam use such sincerity and prudence in this case which touches you so nearly that all the world may have reason to judge you innocent of so enormous a crime a thing which unless you do you will be worthily blotted out from the rank of princesses and rendered not undeservedly the opprobrium of the vulgar rather than which fate should befall you i should wish you an honourable sepulture instead of a stained life but to these and all other representations which could be made to her this criminal and infatuated woman replied by marrying bothwell three months after the death of her husband she now attempted by the most artful sophistries to justify her conduct to the courts of france and england but vain was the endeavour to excuse or explain away facts which the common sense and common feelings of mankind told them could admit of neither explanation nor apology the nobles conspired the people rose in arms against her and within a single month after her ill-omened nuptials she saw her guilty partner compelled to tear himself from her arms and seek his safety in flight and herself reduced to surrender her person into the power of her rebellious subjects the battle of langside put all the power of the country into the hands of the insurgent nobles but they were much divided in opinion as to the use to be made of their victory. Some wished to restore Mary to regal authority under certain limitations. Others wanted to depose her and proclaim her infant son in her place. Some proposed to detain her in perpetual imprisonment. Others threatened to bring her to trial and capital punishment as an accessory to the death of the king. Meantime she was detained a prisoner in Loch Leven Castle, subjected to various indignities and a prey to the most frightful apprehensions but there was an eye which watched over her for her safety, and it was that of Elizabeth. Fears and rivalries, ancient offences and recent provocations, all the imprudence which she had censured, and all the guilt which she had imputed, vanished from the thought of this princess the moment that she beheld a woman, a kinswoman, and what was much more, a sister-queen, 
reduced to this extremity of distress, and exposed to the menaces and insults of her own subjects. For a short time the cause of Mary seemed to her as her own. She interposed in her behalf in a tone of such imperative earnestness that the Scotch nobles, who feared her power and sought her friendship, did not dare to withstand her. And in all probability Mary at this juncture owed no less than her life to the good offices of her who was destined finally to bring her, with more injustice and after many years of sorrow, to an ignominious death. It was not, however, within the power, if indeed it were the wish, of Elizabeth to restore the Queen of Scots to the enjoyment either of authority or of freedom. All Scotland seemed at this period united against her. She was compelled to sign a deed of abdication in favour of her son, who was crowned king in July 1567. The Earl of Murray was declared regent, and a Parliament assembled about the close of the year confirmed all these acts of the Confederate lords, and sanctioned the detention of the deposed Queen, in a captivity of which none could then foresee the termination. Elizabeth ordered her ambassador to abstain from countenancing by his presence the coronation of the King of Scots, and she continued to negotiate for the restoration of Mary. But her ministers strongly represented to her the danger of driving the lords, by a further display of her indignation at their proceedings, into a confederacy with France. And Throgmorton, her ambassador in Scotland, urged her to treat with them to deliver their young king into her hands, in order to his being educated in England. Some proposal of this nature she accordingly made, but the lords, whom former experience had rendered suspicious of her dealings, absolutely refused to give up their prince without the pledge of a recognition of his right of succession to the English throne. And Elizabeth, reluctant as ever to come to a declaration on this point, reluctant also to desert entirely the interests of Mary, with whose remaining adherents she still maintained a secret intercourse, seems to have abstained for some time from any very active interference in the perplexed affairs of the neighbour kingdom. The recent occurrences in Scotland had procured Elizabeth some respite from the importunities of her subjects relative to the succession, but it was not the less necessary for her to take some steps in discharge of her promise respecting marriage. Accordingly, the Earl of Sussex, in this cause a negotiator no less zealous than able, was dispatched in solemn embassy to Vienna, to congratulate the Emperor Maximilian on his coronation, and at the same time to treat with his brother the Archduke Charles respecting his long agitated marriage with the Queen. Two obstacles were to be surmounted, the attachment of the Archduke to the Catholic faith, and the repugnance of Elizabeth to enter into engagements with a prince whose person was unknown to her. Both are attempted to be obviated in two extant letters from the ambassador to the Queen, which at the same time so well display the manly spirit of the writer, and present details so interesting that it would be an injury to give their more important passages in other language than his own. In the first, dated Vienna, October 1567, the Earl of Sussex acquaints Her Majesty with the arrival of the Archduke in that city, and his admission to a first audience, which was one of ceremony only, after which he thus proceeds, quote, On Michaelmas Day in the afternoon, the Emperor rode in his coach to see the Archduke run at the ring who commanded me to run at his side, and my Lord North, Mr. Cobham, and Mr. Powell on the other side. And after the running was done, he rode on a courser of Naples, and surely his Highness, in the order of his running, the managing of his horse and the manner of his seat, governed himself exceedingly well, and so as in my judgment it was not to be amended. Since which time I have had diverse conferences with the Emperor, and with his Highness apart, as well in times of appointed audience as in several huntings wherein I have viewed, observed, and considered of his person and qualities, as much as by any means I might, 
and have also by good diligence inquired of his state and have so thought fit to advertise your majesty what i conceive of myself or understand by others which i trust your majesty shall find to be true in all respects his highness is of a person higher surely a good deal than my lord marquis his hair and beard of a light auburn his face well proportioned amiable and of a good complexion without show of redness or over paleness his countenance and speech cheerful very courteous and not without some state his body well shaped without deformity or blemish his hands very good and fair his legs clean well proportioned and of sufficient bigness for his stature his foot as good as may be so as upon my duty to your majesty i find not one deformity misshape or anything to be noted worthy disliking in his whole person but contrariwise i find his whole shape to be good worthy commendation and liking in all respects and such as is rarely to be found in such a prince his highness besides his natural language of dutch speaketh very well spanish and italian and as i hear latin his dealings with me be very wise his conversation such as much contenteth me and as i hear none returneth discontented from his company he is greatly beloved here of all men the chiefest gallants of these parts be his men and follow his court the most of them have travelled other countries speak many languages and behave themselves thereafter and truly we cannot be so glad there to have him come to us as they will be sad here to have him go from them he is reported to be wise liberal valiant and of great courage which in the last wars he well showed in defending all his countries free from the turk with his own force only and giving them diverse overthrows when they attempted anything against his rules and he is universally which i most weigh noted to be of such virtue as he was never spotted or touched with any notable vice or crime which is much in a prince of his years endued with such qualities he delighteth much in hunting riding hawking exercise of feats of arms and hearing of music whereof he hath very good he hath as i hear some understanding in astronomy and cosmography and taketh pleasure in clocks that set forth the course of the planets he hath for his portion the countries of styria carinthia friola trieste and histria and hath the government of that is left in croatia wherein as i hear he may ride without entering into any other man's territories near three hundred miles surely he is a great prince in subjects territories and revenues and liveth in great honour and state with such a court as he that seeth it will say is fit for a great prince etc on october twenty sixth he writes thus quote, since the writing of my other letters upon the resolution of the emperor and the archduke i took occasion to go to the archduke meaning to sound him to the bottom in all causes and to feel whether such matter as he had uttered to me before contained in my other letters proceeded from him bona fide or were but words of form after some ordinary speech used to minister occasion i began after this sort sir i see it as a great matter to deal in the marriage of princes and therefore it is convenient for me that by the queen my mistress's order intermeddle in this negotiation to foresee that i neither deceive you be deceived myself nor by my ignorance be the cause that she be deceived in respect whereof i beseech your highness to give me leave to treat as frankly with you in all things now i am here as it pleased her majesty to give me leave to deal with her before my coming from thence whereby i may be as well assured of your disposition upon your assured word as i was of hers upon her word and so proceed in all things thereafter whereunto his highness answered me that he thanked me for that kind of dealing and he would truly utter to me what he thought and meant in all things that i should demand 
which upon his word he willed me to credit, and I should not be abused myself, nor abuse your majesty. I then said that, your license granted, I was bold humbly to beseech your majesty to let me understand your inward disposition in this cause, and whether you meant a lingering entertaining of the matter, or a direct proceeding to bring it to a good end, with a determination to consummate the marriage if conveniently you might. Whereupon your majesty not only used such speeches to me as did satisfy me of your plain and good meaning to proceed in this matter without delay, if by convenient means you might, but also gave me in commission to affirm, upon your word, to the emperor, that ye had resolved to marry. You were free to marry where God should put it in your heart to like, and you had given no grateful ear to any motion of marriage but to this, although you had received sundry great offers from others. And therefore your majesty by your letters, and I by your commandment, had desired of his majesty some determinate resolution whereby the matter might one moise or another grow to an end with both your honours, the like whereof I had also said to his highness before, and did now repeat it. And for that, his highness had given me the like license. I would be as bold with him as I had been with your majesty, and therefore beseeched him to let me, upon his honour, understand whether he earnestly desired, for love of your person, the good success and end of this cause, and had determined in his heart upon this marriage, or else to satisfy others that procured him thereto, was content to entertain the matter, and cared not what became thereof, that I also might deal thereafter, for in the one I would serve your majesty and him truly, and in the other I was no person of quality to be a convenient minister. His Highness answered, Count, I have heard by the Emperor of the order of your dealing with him, and I have had dealings with you myself, wherewith he and I rest very well contented. But truly I never rested more contented of anything than I do of this dealing, wherein, besides your duty to her that hath trusted you, you show what you be yourself, for the which I honour you as you be worthy. Pardon me, I beseech your Majesty, in writing the words he spake of myself, for they serve to utter his natural disposition and inclination. And although I have always had a good hope of the Queen's honourable dealing in this matter, yet I have heard so much of her not meaning to marry, as might give me cause to suspect the worst. But understanding by the Emperor of your manner of dealing with him, perceiving that I do presently by your words, I think myself bound, wherewith he put off his cap, to honour, love, and serve Her Majesty while I live, and will firmly credit that you on Her Majesty's behalf have said, and therefore, so I might hope Her Majesty would bear with me for my conscience, I know not that thing in the world that I would refuse to do at her commandment. And surely I have from the beginning of this matter settled my heart upon her, and never thought of other wife, if she would think me worthy to be her husband. And therefore be bold to inform Her Majesty truly herein, for I will not fail of my part in any thing, as I trust sufficiently appeareth to you by that I have heretofore said. I thanked His Highness of his frank dealing, wherein I would believe him and deal thereafter, and now I am satisfied in this, I beseech your Highness satisfy me also in another matter, and bear with me though I be somewhat busy, for I mean it for the best. I have many times heard of men of good judgment, and friends to this cause, that as the Emperor's Majesty, being in disposition of the Augustan Confession, hath been forced in these great wars of the Turk to temporize in respect of Christendom, so your Highness, being of his mind inwardly, hath also upon good policy forborne to discover yourself until you might see some end of your own causes, and expecting, by marriage or other means, a settling of yourself in further advancement of state than your own patrimony, you temporize until you see on which side your lot will fall. And if you find you shall settle in this marriage, ye will, when ye are sure thereof, 
discover what ye be. If this be true, trust me, sir, I beseech you, and I will not betray you, and let me know the secret of your heart, whereby you may grow to a shorter end of your desire. And as I will upon my oath assure you, I will never utter your counsel to any person living but to the queen my mistress, so do I deliver unto you her promise upon her honour not to utter it to any person without your consent. And if you will not trust me herein, commit it to her majesty's trust by your own letters or messenger of trust, and she will not deceive you. Surely, said his highness, whoever hath said this of me to the queen's majesty, or to you, or to any other, hath said more than he knoweth. God grant he meant well therein. My ancestors have always holden this religion that I hold, and I never knew other, and therefore I never could have mind hitherto to change. And I trust, when her majesty shall consider my case well, her determination herein shall not hurt me towards her in this cause. For, Count, said he, how could you with reason give me counsel to be the first of my race that so suddenly could change the religion that all my ancestors have so long holden, when I know no other? Or how can the queen like of me in any other thing that should be so light in changing of my conscience? Where on the other side, in knowing my duty constantly to God for conscience, I have great hope that her majesty, with good reason, will conceive that I will be the more faithful and constant to her in all that honour and conscience bindeth. And therefore I will myself crave of her majesty, by my letters, her granting of this my only request. And I pray you with all my heart to further it in all you may. And shrink not to assure her majesty that if she satisfy me in this, I will never slack to serve and satisfy her while I live in all the rest. In such like talk, to this effect, his highness spent almost two hours with me, which I thought my duty to advertise your majesty, and hereupon I gather that reputation ruleth him much for the present in this case of religion, and that if God couple you together in liking, you shall have of him a true husband, a loving companion, a wise counsellor and a faithful servant, and we shall have as virtuous a prince as ever ruled. God grant, though you be worthy a great deal better than he, if he were to be found, that our wickedness be not such as we be unworthy of him, or of such as he is, quote, etc. It may be matter as much of surprise as regret to the reader of these letters, that a negotiation should have failed of success, which the manly plainness of the envoy on one hand, and the honourable unreserve of the prince on the other, had so quickly freed from the customary intricacies of diplomatic transactions. Religion furnished, to appearance, the only objection which could be urged against the union, and on this head the archduke would have been satisfied with terms the least favourable to himself that could be devised. He only stipulated for the performance of Catholic worship in a private room of the palace, at which none but himself and such servants of his own persuasion as he should bring with him should have permission to attend. He consented regularly to accompany the Queen to the services of the Church of England, and for a time to intermit the exercise of his own religion should any disputes arise, and he engaged that neither he nor his attendants should in any manner contravene, or give countenance to such as contravened, the established religion of the country. In short, he asked no greater indulgence on this head than what was granted without scruple to the ambassadors of Catholic powers. But even this, it was affirmed, was more than the Queen could with safety concede, and on this ground the treaty was finally closed. There was great room, however, to suspect that the real and ostensible reasons for the failure of this marriage were by no means the same. It could scarcely have been expected or hoped that a prince of the house of Austria would consent to desert the religion of his ancestors, which he must have regarded himself as pledged by the honour of his birth to maintain, 
and without deserting it he could not go beyond the terms which Charles actually offered. This religion, as a system of faith and worship, was by no means regarded by Elizabeth with such abhorrence as would render it irksome to her to grant it toleration in a husband, though on political grounds she forbade under heavy penalties its exercise to her subjects. It is true that to the Puritans the smallest degree of indulgence to its idolatrous rites appeared a heinous sin, and from them the Austrian match would have had to encounter all the opposition that could prudently made by a sect itself obnoxious to the rod of persecution. The Duke of Norfolk is said to have given great offence to this party, with which he was usually disposed to act, by the cordial approbation which he was induced, probably by his friendship for the Earl of Sussex, to bestow on this measure. Leicester is believed to have thwarted the negotiations by means of one of his creatures, for whom he had procured the second rank in the embassy of the Earl of Sussex. He also laboured in person to fill the mind of the Queen with fears and scruples respecting it, but it is probable that, after all, the chief difficulty lay in Elizabeth's settled aversion to the married state, and notwithstanding all her professions to her ambassador, the known dissimulation of her character permits us to believe, not only that small obstacles were found sufficient to divert her from accomplishing the union which she pretended to have at heart, but that from the very beginning she was insincere, and that not even the total sacrifice of his religion would have exempted her suitor from final disappointment. The decease of Sir Richard Sackville in 1566 called his son, the accomplished poet, to the inheritance of a noble fortune, and opened to him the career of public life. At the time of his father's death he was pursuing his travels through France and Italy, and had been subjected to a short imprisonment in Rome, quote, which trouble, says his eulogist, was brought upon him by some who hated him for his love to religion and his duty to his sovereign, end quote. Immediately on his return to his native country, the Duke of Norfolk, by the Queen's command, conferred upon him the honour of knighthood, and on the same day he was advanced by her to the degree of a baron by the style of Lord Buckhurst. The new peer immediately shone forth one of the brightest ornaments of the court, but carried away by the ardour of his imagination, he plunged so deeply into the expense of pleasures of the age as seriously to injure his fortune, and in part his credit. Timely reflection, however, added, it is said, to the counsels of his royal kinswoman, cured him of the foible of profusion, and he lived not only to retrieve, but to augment his patrimony to a vast amount. Amid the factions of the court, Lord Buckhurst, almost alone, preserved a dignified neutrality, resting his claims to consideration and influence not on the arts of intrigue, but on his talents, his merit, his extensive possessions, and his interest in his royal kinswoman. Leicester was jealous of his approach, as of that of every man of honour who affected an independence on his support. But it was not till many years afterwards, and on an occasion in which his own reputation and safety were at stake, that the wily favourite ventured a direct attack upon the credit of Lord Buckhurst. At present they preserve towards each other those exteriors of consideration and respect which in the world, and especially at courts, are found so perfectly compatible with fear, hatred, or contempt. It was about this time that in one of Her Majesty's summer progresses an incident occurred which the painter or the poet might seize and embellish. Passing through Northamptonshire, she stopped to visit her royal castle of Fotheringay, then or soon after committed by her to the keeping of Sir William Fitzwilliam, several times Lord Deputy of Ireland. The castle was at this time entire and magnificent, and must have been viewed by Elizabeth with sentiments of family pride. It was erected by her remote progenitor Edmund of Langley, son of King Edward III, and founder of the House of York. 
by his directions the keep was built in the likeness of a fetterlock the well-known cognizance of that line and in the windows the same symbol with its attendant falcon was repeatedly and conspicuously emblazoned from edmund of langley it descended to his son edward duke of york slain in the field of agincourt and next to the son of his unfortunate brother the decapitated earl of cambridge to that richard who fell at wakefield in the attempt to assert his title to the crown which the victorious arms of his son edward the fourth afterwards vindicated to himself and his posterity in a collegiate church adjoining were deposited the remains of edward and richard dukes of york and of cecily wife to the latter who survived to behold so many bloody deeds of which her children were the perpetrators or the victims elizabeth attended by all the pomp of royalty proceeded to visit the spot of her ancestors interment but what was her indignation and surprise on discovering that the splendid tombs which had once risen to their memory had been involved in the same destruction with the college itself of which the rapacious northumberland had obtained a grant from edward the sixth and that scarcely a stone remained to protect the dust of these descendants and progenitors of kings she instantly gave orders for the erection of suitable monuments to their honour but her commands were ill-obeyed and a few miserable plaster-figures were all that the illustrious dead obtained at last from her pride or her piety. These monuments, however, such as they are, remain to posterity, whilst of the magnificent castle, the only adequate commemoration of the power and greatness of its possessors, one stone is not left upon another. It was levelled with the ground by order of James I, that not a vestige might remain of the last prison of his unhappy mother, the fatal scene of her trial, condemnation, and ignominious death. The close of the year 1567 had left the Queen of Scots a prisoner in Lochleven Castle, her infant son declared king, and the regent Murray. A man of vigour, prudence, and in the main of virtue, holding the reins with a firm hand. For the peace and welfare of Scotland, for the security of reformed religion, and for the ends of that moral retribution from which the crimes and vices of the rulers of mankind ought least of all to be exempt, nothing could be more desirable than that such a state of things should become permanent by the acquiescence of the potentates of europe and of that powerful aristocracy which in scotland was unhappily superior to the whole force of the laws and the constitution but for its destruction many interests many passions and prejudices conspired it was rather against bothwell than against the queen that many of the nobles had taken arms and more favourable terms would at first have been granted her could she have been brought to consent as a preliminary to divorce and banish him for ever from her presence the flight of bothwell and the prolongation of her own captivity had subdued her obstinacy on this point it was understood that she was now willing that her marriage should be dissolved and this concession alone sufficed to bring her many partisans sentiments of pity began to arise in favour of an unfortunate queen and beauty and to cause her crimes to be extenuated or forgotten all the Catholics in Scotland were her earnest friends, and the foreign princes of the same persuasion were unceasingly stimulating them to act openly in her behalf. With these, Elizabeth, either by her zeal for the common cause of sovereigns, or by some treacherous designs of her own, was brought into the most preposterous conjunction, and she had actually proposed to the court of France that they should by joint consent cut off all communication with Scotland till the Queen should be reinstated the haughty and unconciliating temper of murray had embittered the animosity entertained against him by several nobles of the blood royal each of whom regarded himself as the person best entitled to the office of regent and an insurrection against his authority was already in contemplation when mary having by her promises and blandishments bribed an unthinking youth to effect her liberation 
suddenly reappeared in readiness to put herself at the head of such of her countrymen as still owned her allegiance. Several leading nobles flocked hastily to her standard. A bond was entered into for her defence, and in a few days she saw herself at the head of six thousand men. Elizabeth made her an immediate offer of troops and succour, stipulating, however, from a prudent jealousy of the French, that no foreign forces should be admitted into Scotland, and further that all disputes between Mary and her subjects should be submitted to her arbitration. End of section 21